I'm going to begin tonight with a quote, and then a poem, and then a song. Quote, a poem, and a song. Here's a quote. Ecclesiastes may be the most difficult biblical book to interpret and preach. Sidney Greedness, Preaching Christ from Ecclesiastes. This is a wonderful book, by the way, and it's been very helpful to me, but he just acknowledges at the outset, this is tough sledding. I told somebody just before we started that there are multiple commentaries on Ecclesiastes that I've referenced where brilliant minds, great Hebrew scholars, incredible biblical theologians, they're breaking down this book and they're wrestling with the text and they just say, you know what, I have no idea what this is about. And as a, a novice like myself, you read that and you think, well, that is not helpful because I'm going to have to stand up and not say, I don't have any idea what this means. Uh, this is a tricky, tricky book. It's not unlike the book of Revelation, which we studied at the end of the last year and which we're studying in Women's Bible Study as well as Emmanuel Institute, in that the genre, the type of writing makes it tricky, makes it challenging. We'll talk about that here in just a little while. And the contents of the book are just hard. It's just a challenging, difficult book to think through and to make sense of. So why would we, on a Wednesday night, when we could talk about whatever we want to talk about, why would we take time to read this old, and it is old, old Hebrew piece of wisdom literature We'll talk about in a minute whether we even know who wrote the book or we don't know who wrote the book. And some of the brightest minds in the world read it and just throw their hands in the air and say, I don't know what to do with that. Why would we try to wade through that and tackle it on a Wednesday night? Why study Ecclesiastes? Here you go. You ready for gut punch number one? Because we are all going to die. We're all going to die. All of us are going to die. Every one of us. And because that's true, you need to wrestle with the contents of this book. So, here's a poem. William Dunbar was a Scottish poet, and he wrote a poem titled Lament for the Macarus, which uh, Macarus is a, a Latin word for poets, lament for the poets. He wrote it in 1505, and he's writing about his fear of death, his fear of death. And I just want to read some of it to you. I'll put it up on the screen, and you can follow along as I read. He says this, I who enjoyed good health and gladness am overwhelmed now by life's terrible sickness and enfeebled with infirmity. How... The fear of death dismays me. Our presence here is mere vainglory. The false world is but transitory. The flesh is frail. The fiend runs free. All of the capital words in this poem are referring to death. Death is the fiend. The fiend runs free. How the fear of death dismays me. The state of man is changeable, now sound, now sick, now blithe, now dull. 
now manic, now devoid of glee. How the fear of death dismays me. No state on earth stands here securely as the wild wind shakes the willow tree. So wavers this world's vanity. How the fear of death dismays me. I see the makers among the unsaved. And in that line, he's talking about the poets. Uh, the song is about poets who have died, or the poem is about poets who have died. I see the, the poets, the makers among the unsaved. The greatest of poets all go to the grave. He, death, does not spare them their faculty. How the fear of death dismays me. I've seen the monster pitilessly devour our noble Chaucer, poetry's flower, in Lydgate and Gower, great trinity. How the fear of death dismays me. Since he has taken my brothers all, I know he will not let me live past the fall. His next prey will be for unfortunate me. How the fear of death dismays me. There is no remedy for death. We all must prepare to relinquish breath so that after we die, we may be set free from the fear of death. Dismays me. People are afraid of death. I was reminded of that very recently, talking to a man whose wife was very ill, and he made the comment to me, not long ago, she wanted to go purchase burial plots. And I said, I don't want to think about that. We didn't do it. And I wish I had done it, but I didn't want to think about it, and I don't want to think about it. I don't want to deal with that. I just want to push it into the back of my mind. The fear of death dismays me. Here's similar wisdom, not from 1505, but from 1973. Group of English poets. I gave you a Scottish poet. Now I'm giving you English poets. A band named Pink Floyd. I listened to this song in my office today while I was studying, just to get in the right frame of mind. And I'm not going to sing the song to you. I'm just going to read you the words. And I'm going to tell you this. These guys read the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes. I promise you they read it. This is what the song says, time. Ticking away the moments that make up a dull day. Fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way. Kicking around on a piece of ground in your hometown. Waiting for someone or something to show you the way. Tired of lying in the sunshine? Staying home to watch the rain? You're young. Life is long. There's time to kill today. And then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. And you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older. Shorter a breath, and one day closer to death. Every year is getting shorter, never seem to find the time. Plans that either come to naught or half a page of scribbled lines, hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. The time is gone, song is over. I thought I'd had something more to say. That's Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11. We could just close it up and say, you got it. 
if you don't understand the certainty of death, you know it. You understand. You filled in the first blank on the outlines. You got it. If you don't understand the certainty of death, you can never understand the meaning of life. Never. And as Americans, we tend to stand in the present and look to the future. We sit in the present and we look to the future and we say things like, where do you want to be in five years? Where do you want to be in 10 years? Where do you want to be in 20 years? And we set our goals today based on where we want to move into the future. And the book of Ecclesiastes is saying that is completely backward. That's American human wisdom. And biblical wisdom doesn't start in the present and look forward. It starts in the end and looks backward. And you start with the understanding that someday I'm going to die. That is a rock-solid certainty. And then you look backwards and arrange your life accordingly. So Ecclesiastes is helping us to think about death so that we can think about life. So take your Bible. Let's just read the first 11 verses. Ecclesiastes 1.1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You just read that in the Pink Floyd song. They didn't invent that. The sun rises, the sun goes down, it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, it goes around to the north, and round and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Here we go, Ecclesiastes 1. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. You've got to understand what type of writing you're reading. What is the genre? The genre is wisdom literature. You need to understand something further than just that this is wisdom liter literature. You need to understand that in the Bible, there's two types of wisdom literature. There's what we might call instructive wisdom literature. And then there's something that we would call reflective wisdom literature. Instructive wisdom literature you find in the book of Proverbs. Have you ever read the book of Proverbs? You can drop in at any point and make sense of what the book is saying. You don't have to read the beginning or the end or the middle. You can just kind of drop in and you can pull something out valuable. You don't have to think 
all that hard about most of the Proverbs. There's some of them that are a little tricky and the imagery is foreign to us, but they're pretty straightforward. Instructive wisdom. Reflective wisdom is different. It's not clear immediately. And you can't just drop in anywhere in the book and make sense of the whole thing or what you're reading in that particular passage. Reflective wisdom requires you to read from the beginning all the way through the middle, all the way to the end, so that you can go back and make sense of the beginning. I've heard people say the craziest things about the book of Job, which is reflective wisdom. And I've listened to them, and I've thought to myself, you haven't read to the end of the book. You don't even know how this story ends. It's like you're lecturing me on a movie, and you haven't seen the final scene. You don't even know where this is going. That doesn't make any sense. I told Jason, teaching our college kids, and Jake, teaching our youth, several months ago, back in the fall, I said, look, we're going to do Ecclesiastes, because I put it to a vote to our elders, and I said, what do you guys want to do? And they voted Ecclesiastes, and they will never get to vote again. But I said, we're going to do Ecclesiastes. And I told Jason and Jake, you better start reading it now. And you better read all the way to the end, and then you better go back to the beginning and read to the end and go back to the beginning and read to the end and go back to the beginning and read to the end over and over and over again. Because if you don't, even though you have some of my notes and ideas and we're all trying to stay on the same page, you're going to say something on week two that you then want to scratch out and take back on week seven. You've got to know the end to make sense of the beginning when it comes to reflective wisdom literature. Who wrote the book? Ecclesiastes contains the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. If you want to be a Hebrew scholar and you don't want to write in the preacher, you can write in the word Koheleth. Your Bible might even have a footnote beside the word preacher that says the word here is Koheleth. And the word Koheleth literally means something like professor or pundit or philosopher. There's all sorts of different ideas about what this actual title means, Koheleth. Now, you're saying you didn't answer the question. Who wrote it? I want to know who wrote it. And you're reading verse 1, and it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That sounds like who? Solomon, okay. There's a lot of people that think Solomon wrote it. I pulled Jason and Jake right before the service. And I said, you've got five minutes to respond to this. Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? One of them said Solomon. And the other one said, not Solomon. Do you know what I told the guys in my Bible study yesterday morning when we were looking at Ecclesiastes? I said, I don't know. I don't know. In my notes, which I wrote down a couple of months ago, I said Solomon. But I don't know who wrote it. Here's the rub when it comes to Solomon. Think about Solomon's life. He starts out great. He sort of goes off a cliff and falls into idolatry and all sorts of sin and immorality. And it's a terrible end. And that's where his story leaves off. So you come to the book of Ecclesiastes and you say, when did he write it if he wrote it? Did he write it before he went over the edge? If he did, why didn't he read his own book and not go over the edge? 
that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not saying it's impossible. It's just kind of you wrestle with that and you think, well, that's strange. Or you say maybe he started off great, went over the edge, and then came back and wrote the book of Ecclesiastes to reflect on the whole experience. It's possible. The Bible just doesn't talk about that. The Bible doesn't say that he came back from all of this idolatry and wickedness and immorality and sin and selfishness. And it doesn't say that. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen. But I'm just wrestling with you about who wrote the book. It's a tricky question. If you think it was Solomon, that's okay. You could convince me today. Maybe not tomorrow, but you could convince me. This is what I want to point out to you. If it's Solomon or whoever wrote it, he does identify himself as a king, but he's not writing with his king hat. He's not writing with his crown. The crown is off, and he's writing as Koheleth. He's writing as the pundit. He's writing as the philosopher. He's writing as the commentator. He's writing uh, as the teacher. That's what the words of this book are, the words of the preacher. I want you to look at verse 2 and 3, 2 and 3, and I want to talk to you about vocabulary. I genuinely believe that if you can wrap your mind around Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and 3, you are halfway to being able to make sense of the rest of the book. You're not all the way, you're not a majority of the way, but you're halfway. Four terms that you need to wrestle with and think about from Ecclesiastes 2 and 3. The words in the ESV, I'm reading out of the ESV, are vanity, gain, toil, and then the phrase under the sun. Some of you like numbers, so let me just give you numbers to help you understand that these are important. The word vanity shows up in the book of Ecclesiastes 38 times. Do I have the numbers that we can put up there? There they are. Vanity, 38 times in the book. Gain, the word gain, only shows up nine times. But guess what? This is the only book in the Old Testament that has that particular word. Only nine times, but you don't find it in any other Old Testament book. Vanity, 38, gain, 9, toil, 23 times, and the phrase under the sun, 29 times. They're just on repeat over and over and over and over again. They come up over and over and over again, and you've got to understand these terms if you want to make sense of the book. So let's just walk through, through these terms one at a time. The first one in the ESV is vanity. It is the Hebrew word hebel, hebel. It's the same basic word as Abel, Cain and Abel, Hebel. How many of you have, just take your Bible, check the spine. How many of you have ESV, King James, New King James, New American Standard? Okay, hands in the air, that is team vanity. Who has NIV or NLT? Anybody brave enough to raise your hand? Very good meaningless. It's meaningless. Anybody a card-carrying Southern Baptist and you have the Holman Christian Standard Bible? Yes, we have at least one in the room. The most recent edition of the HS, 
uh, HCSB is absolute futility. And is anyone brave enough to admit that you came to a Bible study carrying the message? No one's brave enough. Someone did it, but you're not brave enough. In the message, Eugene Peterson uses the word smoke. Now, you can mark this down in history. Never again will you hear me say that the message is the best translation of a word in the Bible. But guess what? I think it's the best translation of this word in this book. I think the word vanity is too pessimistic. I cannot, it, absolute futility, vanity, meaningless. I cannot square those words with everything else that I read in Ecclesiastes. You maybe could square it with what we read in chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. But I don't think you can square it with what you find in the rest of the book. And even in the ESV, which I'm reading, when I read the very first vanity in Ecclesiastes 1-2, there's a footnote, and I go down to the bottom, and it says the Hebrew term hebel, translated here as vanity, refers to mist, vapor, breath. Mist, vapor, breath. That is what the word literally means. And what all of these translations have done when they say absolute meaningless, meaningless, vanity, is they have not only translated the word, but they've done interpretation on your behalf. Now, they may be right. Really smart guys did these translations. I'm just telling you, I think when you read the book as a whole, the best way to understand this word is smoke, vapor, breath, mist. That's how the word is used in Psalm 39, Psalm 90, Psalm 103, Psalm 144, and James chapter 4. It's referring to something that is here for a moment, and then it's gone without a trace. And I think Ecclesiastes is saying to you, that's you, and that's me, and that's all of us, and that's our life on this earth. You are here, and then you're gone. And it's that quick compared to eternity. It's like smoke. It's here, and it's gone. It's a mist. It's here, and it's gone. It's a breath, and it's gone. Now, there are places in the Bible, Jeremiah 16 and Romans 8, just to be honest, where the same word, Romans is the New Testament, so we're moving to Greek, not Hebrew, but the same real word, the same idea is translated something more like meaningless or vain. So Jeremiah says, idols are hebel. They're nothing. They have no substance. Paul says, because of sin, the reality of sin in the world, creation has been subjected to futility or vanity. Again, we're working in Greek in the New Testament, but it's the same idea that you find here with the word hebel. Let me just give you three quotes. I don't think I put these in your notes because of space, but I'm going to put them up on the screen just to help you understand where I'm coming from and what I'm thinking with this word hebel. Okay? Dwayne Garrett, this is my Old Testament professor. Southern Seminary. Everything is transitory. 
and therefore of no lasting value. People are caught up in the trap of the absurd and they pursue empty pleasures. They build their lives on lies. Everything is transitory. That's the idea of Hebel, mist, vapor, breath. Here today, gone tomorrow. Here this minute, gone the next. We think we've built our lives on granite. We've really built them on sand. Here's another quote. David Gibson. The book of Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means for our lives to be like a whisper spoken into the wind. Here one minute and carried away forever the next. Just This is what Gibson is saying. This is your life. That's it. One more quote. Derek Kidner. A wisp, a vapor, a puff of wind, a mere breath, nothing you could get your hands on. The nearest thing to zero. That's the vanity, and he puts it in quotes, the vanity that this book is about. It's different to say everything is meaningless and dumb and worthless than it is to say everything is just passing very quickly, just passing. It's like smoke at a campfire. Is it a real thing? It's there. Can you grab it with your hand and hold on to it? Nope. You, you, can't, you can't get it and hold it and keep it. It's like your shadow. Is it a real thing? Well, it's there. You can see it. Can you, can you get it? can't get it. it. It's next to nothing. That's the idea that the author's driving at. So that is the word hebel or vanity. Now, throughout the book, I'm not going to rehash all this every time we talk about vanity. I'm going to bring it up almost every week, but I'm not going to go all the way through this. And you just need to have in your mind, week one people, you're here from the get-go, vanity may not be the best. Maybe it's smoke, breath, vapor, mist, something that's transitory. Word number two, yitron, is the word gain. It's just an economic term. It's a business term, and it simply means profit. Profit. This particular word only used in the book of Ecclesiastes, gain. Jesus talked about gain, didn't he? What does it profit you if you gain the whole world? and you lose your soul. What does it profit you? What does it gain you? What advantage accrues to you if all the plans that you make from this point moving forward come to fruition perfectly, but you don't start at the end and work backwards, and in the end you lose your soul? What's the profit in that? What's the gain in that? That's the question being asked here. Usually when we think about gain and profit, we think about work, we think about our careers. My dad is close to retirement. He could retire today if he wanted to. He doesn't really have any hobbies, so he's just going to keep working for a while, but he's not going to work forever. He's worked for decades selling steel. What's going to happen when he quits? They're going to give him a watch, maybe a plaque. Maybe have a cake. And then on Monday, the intern's going to move into his desk. And they're going to keep selling steel. What's the gain? 
what's true for steel salesmen is true for preachers. I'm not irreplaceable, unreplaceable, not replaceable. God forbid something happens to me tonight. What happens next week? Will you all cry? Lots of tears. Very sad. Some of you may be just relieved. I don't know. <laughs> then guess what? You form a pastor search committee. You find a new pastor. That's what you do. I'm not the first pastor of this church. We sang a hymn just a moment ago. Tony Paris said it was Bill Cook's favorite hymn. You know how much people love Bill Cook? Bill Cook's gone. There's a new pastor. Someday I'm going to be gone. There's going to be a new pastor. The question is, what's the gain? What's the advantage? I read a quote from a guy named Leonard Wolf. Some of you probably heard of Virginia Wolf, the author. She was married to a guy named Leonard. Leonard was also an author. He wrote lots of books. And he was a publisher, and he was a civil servant in Great Britain, which means he worked for the government. That's a picture of Leonard in Virginia when they were young and then when they were older. And Leonard Wolf came to the end of his life. He was a very accomplished man, very accomplished. He came to the end of his life, and he looked back, and he said to himself, what would actually be different in the world if I had not done all of the things that I did. And do you know what his conclusion was? The world is not all that different on the whole than if I had spent the last 50 years of my life playing ping pong. Are some small things different? Probably, yes. Are some individual people different? Yes, certainly. But on the whole, what changed on the macro level? What was the overarching gain? And his conclusion was nothing. Word number three, amal. Amal. It's translated in the ESV as toil. Toil. Again, when I say toil, you probably think about work. Are you a steel salesman? Are you a preacher? Do you work in the oil field? Are you a teacher? What do you do? What's your toil? Your profession is included in your toil, but this is really important. In the book of Ecclesiastes, this word amal, toil, refers to everything that you do in life. Your family life, your marriage, your kids, your parents, your hobbies, mowing the lawn, going to work, anything and everything that you do in life falls under this heading of amal or toil. One last word, and this one's a phrase, tahat shemesh, under the sun. Under the sun. All my life, I have heard this phrase described as under the sun in Ecclesiastes means life as if there's no God. As if under the sun is all there is. Right? It's talking about a place. Life under the sun. And we discount God and we don't take God into consideration and we just look for meaning in this world apart from God. I am now convinced that this phrase, under the sun, doesn't so much refer to a place as a time. And that's because of the idea of hebel. It's a breath. It's a vapor. It's a mist. How do we measure our time? The sun. And you read it in chapter 1. It goes around, and it goes around, and it goes around, and it goes around. Life under the sun. 
you only get so many trips around. That's your life under the sun. And when the author of Ecclesiastes talks about things that happen under the sun, he's talking about things that happen in this very brief moment of time that we experience as our lives. You've heard, I'm not going to say old people, you've heard older people say, time flies and it gets faster when you get older, right? A lot of you are like, yes, that's true. We experience that. It is true. When you spend nine months in the third grade learning long division, that's a tenth of your life devoted to long division. That's a lot of your life. One tenth of your, what have you done with your life, third grader? Well, I spent a tenth of it on long division. When you're 70, some of you are close to that. That nine months in third grade is one hundredth of your life. It's a much smaller part. It's the same reason if you're a sports fan where you watch a football game and it seems like it takes forever to get to halftime and then the third quarter goes by pretty quick and then you look up and there's like two-minute warning in the fourth quarter. What is happening? First half just kept going and the second half just gone under the sun. Ecclesiastes 3 and 2 have all the key words, and this is the next point on your outline. They also have the central question and the initial conclusion, and they're backwards. Verse 3 is the central question, and verse 2 is the initial conclusion. Now, the way Americans think, we say, shouldn't you take uh, the question and put the question in verse 2 and the conclusion in verse Three, shouldn't you ask the question and then draw the conclusion? That's just not how he does it. Hebrew people didn't do anything in the order that we tend to do things in. So he gives you the conclusion, and then he asks the question. The question is, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? You live your life under the sun. It's going to go by that quick. And you're going to toil. You're going to do lots of different things. Work, hobbies, family, all sorts of stuff church. And the question is, what do you gain? What do you profit from all the stuff that you do in this brief moment of time that you spend under the sun? And his conclusion is verse 2, smoke, vapor, breath, mist. It's all hevel. It's going by that fast. It's here and then it's gone. What follows in verse 4 to 11 is a beautiful and a haunting poem about the Hebel involved in life on earth. I just want you to take your copy of the scriptures and I just want to walk through this with you. Verse 4, generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains. How many of you have great Great, 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 great grandparents still living. Generations go. How many of you have kids or grandkids? Generations come. The more generations you see come, the closer you are to going. They come and they go. Verse 5. 
Guess what's going to happen tomorrow? Sun's going to come up. Any Annie fans? Bet your bottom dollar, tomorrow there'll be sun. Sun's going to come up. Author of Ecclesiastes knows it. The preacher knows it. We live in West Texas. One of your favorite verses ought to be Ecclesiastes 1.6. The wind blows. Sometimes to the south, and then it goes to the north, and then around and around it goes. And then it's on a circuit, and it comes back. It just keeps blowing. We know that. You'll have to take my word for it on verse 7. Streams run to the sea. Sea doesn't fill up. Place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eyes not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That's an amazing insight for somebody who lived thousands of years ago. You can rip that verse, thousands of years old ancient Hebrew wisdom, and you can plop it right down on your Netflix. I just binged a show. Guess what? Netflix has another one for you to binge. And another one. And another one. And another one. And another one. Any of you got to the end of the internet yet? I mean, web pages intentionally do this now. Sometimes on news sites, you try to scroll to the bottom. You can't get to the bottom. They just keep adding stuff below. More ads, more stories, more stuff, more things for you to click on. More, 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 more. The eyes never satisfied. The ears never satisfied. Look at verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. There's a new dictator in the Middle East. Bet he's just like the old one. The 117th Congress is out, and the 118th Congress is in in the United States of America. We're two days in. We can't pick a speaker. It's the same stuff. It's just the same stuff over and over and over again. Same stuff. Nothing new. We got past this variant of COVID. Well, now you got to worry about the COVID B2Q slash X asterisk variant is coming out. It's the worst you've ever heard. It's going to be nothing's new. There's plagues and sicknesses. Nothing's new under the sun. Look at verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things. I love listening to the PTI podcast. Two old grouchy men talking about sports. And you know what? They, they say it more and more and more when I listen to the podcast every morning. They say, these young people, they don't care about sports history. They don't know how great these guys were in the past. They don't remember any of that stuff. Isn't that an old person thing to say? They don't remember how great it was. You don't know anything. You weren't around and you don't remember. And some of you are like, I, I say that. I say that. That's what you sound like. Guess what? It's true. It's true. The next generation, generations come and they go. The next generation, they don't remember all the stuff from your days. They're going to forget it. Stuff that means a lot to you. They're going to forget it. C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. Everyone thinks their little vapor of time under the sun is the most important, the most significant. Nothing that comes before us matters. 
I promise you, if you go back and read ancient Greek and Roman classical sources, do you know what they gripe about? These young kids in Athens, they don't respect the past. They don't honor their parents. They're defiant. They're disrespectful. Everything is terrible. It's not as good as it used to be. Nobody remembers how things ought to be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Look at the end of verse 11. Of the latter things yet to be among those who come after, there will not be any remembrance. How many generations will it take for you to be completely forgotten? Probably fewer than you'd like to think. For all of us. Probably fewer than you'd like to think. Now some of you are like, this is the worst Bible study I have ever been to. This is terrible. Terrible, terrible. It's kind of terrible. It's also true. And you can read this book and you can say, that is the most pessimistic, negative book that I've ever read in my life. Or you can say, it's real, and it's honest, and it's true. And it's telling us a bunch of stuff that we don't want to think about. Let me be honest with you. You cannot spend your whole life thinking about Ecclesiastes. If you do, you'll spend your whole life curled up in a ball with a blanket, just being miserable, sucking your thumb. But sometimes you got to think about this stuff. It is true. And Christians should not just go around with a fake smile on our face pretending like it's not true. I love this quote from David Gibson. Being a Christian doesn't stop this being true. Rather, it should make us the first to stop pretending it isn't true. The world you live in puts its head in the sand and says none of that's true. I don't want to think about it. They know it's true. They don't want to think about it. It scares them. The fear of death dismays them. It's true. It's the truth. It's not the whole truth. There's two places we got to go to get the whole truth. And the first place is the end of the book. So look at the end of Ecclesiastes. This study is titled The Beginning and the End. And I told you that this is reflective wisdom. You cannot make sense of the beginning or the middle or the end until you read all of it. And so I think it makes sense on week one for us to bookend the whole book with the opening and the closing. Look at Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. How many times, don't cheat, how many times did you read the word God in Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11? Zero. There's a reason it's depressing. In that part, God's not there. Here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. 
calls us to be wise by acknowledging two things. Number one, the certainty of death. And number two, the inevitability of judgment. The certainty of death and the inevitability of judgment. Whether you want to admit it or not, you are racing. Your brief mist of a life, you are racing towards death and judgment. I've listened to Alistair Begg preach through Ecclesiastes. I'm going back and I'm listening to him preach through it as I prepare for this. One of the things he says all the time is that one out of one dies. One out of one. All of us. One out of one dies. You're racing towards the day of judgment. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is what the end of the book is telling you. Don't start in the present and plan your life out months, years, decades. Don't do it that way. Start with the end. Then look back with honesty and then plan your life. And what he's saying is when you think about it that way, when you plan it that way, you understand I need to fear God and I need to keep his commandments. This is hard for Americans because we don't do death well. We just really don't do it at all. And I'm not trying to knock us as Americans. I'm just trying to be honest and think about why this is so hard for us and why it's so unsettling for us. In the United States of America, we've professionalized death in all forms or fashions. Okay, Some of you hunt, so you're about to be the, the objection to what I'm about to say. But when's the last time you slaughtered and butchered your own meat? I mean, if you hunt, you do that. The rest of us go to Larry's. And there it is. And kids that don't know any better just think that's where meat comes from. It comes from Larry's. You just go in and there it is. Tell him what you want. It, that's it. Where did it come from? We don't deal with that. Even those who hunt don't do it every day, every month. When our pets get sick, we take them to the vet and they put them down. We can't even say it. We watched Old Yeller growing up and we don't want to think about it. It's terrible, isn't it? It's a terrible ending to the movie and we don't want to think about that. So we just say, I'm just going to take Fluffy to the vet and just going to put her down. End of life with our loved ones. Again, I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm just thinking about reality, life for us. Somebody comes to the end of life. What do we do? We call hospice. We don't deal with that directly. We, we call a professional in. And we're thankful that there's professionals that are good at their job. We call them in. We say, we need your help. Could you walk us through this? We take them to the hospital. We need medical care. We need palliative care. We need all sorts of... We're hands off with that. When somebody dies, what do we do? Do we handle that? No. You call the coroner. You call the mortician. You call the funeral home. They come get the body. They take it away. They do everything. You don't, you don't do any of that. We don't deal with death at all. The closest we come is something like Old Yeller. And the reason it triggers us so much in a movie or when a football player falls down on a field and his heart stops beating and everyone can't quit watching that because we're not around that normally. And Ecclesiastes is saying to Americans, this is going to be hard because you guys don't do death much. 
But you're going to need to deal with this, and you're actually need to start with the end and work back to the beginning. Because if you just try to start in real time and work towards the end, you're never going to get where you need to get. How about this quote from David Gibson? If this depresses you, keep reading. Don't quit. There's still a lot to learn. But if it cracks a wry smile on your face, you're halfway to happiness. If it disturbs you, don't quit. Stay with us for the next few months. But for those of you who have wrestled with this, maybe not willingly, but just because of the circumstances life has brought to you recently, and you say, I know this. I mean, I didn't know it was that plain in the Bible, but I know this experientially. And it does crack a wry smile. You're halfway home. Ecclesiastes is an important part of God's self-revelation. Thank God it's in the Bible. Something that is so honest, even though we may not want to hear it. It is an important part of God's self-revelation. It's not the final word in God's self-revelation. This is what I said earlier. Ecclesiastes is the truth. It is not the whole truth. And you've got to wrestle with this book in chapter 1 and chapter 12 to make sense of the book. But you also got to understand this is Old Testament wisdom and there's a whole nother group of books, a whole nother section of the Bible at the end that you've got to wrestle with if you want to make sense of this book. So let's end with this. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers us something entirely new. Entirely new. You remember what we read in chapter 1? Verse 9, there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. Genesis 3 tells a story of a man who was taken from dust, and God told him, you're going back to the dust. You're going to die. And when you keep reading in the story, you get to Genesis chapter 5. It's the most fascinating genealogy in the whole Bible outside of Matthew chapter 1, Luke 2. But in the genealogy in Genesis 5, it's unlike any other genealogy, this guy lived a long time, and what happened? He died. And then this guy, he lived a long time, but what happened to him? He died too. And then this guy, he didn't live quite as long, but it's still a long time. What happened to him at the end? He died, all of them. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's like the author of Genesis, Moses, is just pounding it into your head. They all die. One out of one. They all die. Enoch, God takes him. Everyone else, they all die. They all die. And then you come to the Gospel of John. And you read about a rabbi from Nazareth. And he says to his followers, I'm the good shepherd. And I'm going to lay down my life. And you say, okay, people have done that before. Happened lots of times. Read that in Genesis 5. Read that in Ecclesiastes. I'm going to lay down my life. And what? I'm going to take it up again. And you hear that and you say, well, that's new. We've never seen that. That has not happened. Somebody lays down their life and then they just take it back up. And then he says something to his followers. It's even better. He says, because I'm the good shepherd and I'm going to lay down my life and then I'm going to take it back up, even though you die, 
you'll live. You say, well, that's new. Never heard of that before. We're all going to die, but now you're telling me that even though I die, I can actually live. It's because a good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. When you get to 1 Corinthians 15, you read the longest discussion in the Bible about the resurrection, about the hope of Jesus coming back for his people, raising his people back to life, giving them new life. And there are a lot of themes in 1 Corinthians 15 that tie directly to Ecclesiastes. Let me just show you one verse. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work, the toil of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, it's the same word in Greek, and it connects with the word in Hebrew, your toil is not in vain. In the Lord, it's not in vain. It's not Hebel. It's not just a breath. It's not just here and then gone, but it's something that lasts. It's a beautiful verse, but you read it in 1 Corinthians 15, you understand that verse is true because of who Jesus is, what he did in his death on the cross, and what he did in his resurrection, and the promise to his followers that because I'm the good shepherd and I laid down my life and I took it back up, even though you die, you can live. There's hope. There's hope. There's not a ton of hope in the book of Ecclesiastes. Just be honest with you. There's a lot of honesty. But it's not the final word in the scriptures. And all the time when you're reading Ecclesiastes, you've got to keep moving forward and say, this is not the final word. I've got to go to the end, to chapter 12, and I've got to go to the end. I've got to go to Jesus for the good news of the gospel. So, let's pray tonight, and then we'll sing and we'll be dismissed. God, we're thankful for this book. Um, there's things in this book that are hard for us to read and to think about. There's things that we spend most of our lives not thinking about, trying to avoid, trying to pretend like it's not true for us or it's not true at all. But Lord, we're thankful for a book that is just honest. And if we need to be shaken and awakened to what is true, we pray that you would use Ecclesiastes to do that in our lives. God, we're mindful that a day of judgment is coming, that we ought to live our lives in light of that reality, but we're mindful that uh, if all there is is a day of judgment, we're in trouble. And so we're thankful that the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. We're thankful that he took it back up again, something new. And we're thankful that he offers us something new, life even in the midst of death. Father, we're thankful that in Christ, our work and our toil and our labor is not in vain, but it has lasting significance. So, Lord, we're thankful for Ecclesiastes 1, for Ecclesiastes 12, and we're thankful for the good news of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.